Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi, hello, how are you? It's Daryl, and welcome to episode 62 of Cage Rage, a Nicolas Cage podcast. It's the podcast in which I, Daryl Edge, your humble host and guide, ask you to join me on the journey to true Cage Nirvana that is the truest, highest, most state and form of being by watching all of the films of the greatest actor of this any or all generations, Mr. Nicolas Cage, and achieving that status of true Cage Nirvana by being as close to the golden hog of Hollywood himself, and hopefully his films are going to help us understand the man a little bit better. Hope you're well, hope you're doing good, hope you've had some of the sunshine that's coming in, going out, staying around, saying hi, leaving you with the bar tab. Um, As for where I'm based, the sun's quite gone this week, it's very overcast, a little bit cloudy, cloudy he says, Uh, lots of rainy rains as well. Uh, not much to report myself this week. Um, celebrated the other house birthday out in Leeds. It was a very nice time. Everyone's back out and uh, around again. Uh, the rabble rousers are out. Security are up to their necks in cretins, heathens, ne'er-do-wells, pirates, villains, and otherwise um, bastards. So credit to the service that they provide. Uber are hiking up their prices. They're fucking loving it. Um, but what I've been loving is, if you're ever in Leeds, have the opportunity to come out for some wonderful food. Cannot recommend Ox Club enough. What a place um, that food can get shoved right up my ass. That's the highest rating I can give to food. Um, I'll have that all bloody day. Uh, I finally got some foam padding as well for the little recording room in the house. So I'm going to try and configure a way to sort of get that up and on walls in and around Um and hopefully it'll make some kind of effect, God knows. But um, it looks nice and it smells nice though, so there's that at least. Moving on to more pressing matters, episode 62, Troy Hewitt returns on the journey to true cage nirvana. Um, it was knowing last time, but this time we're talking about 2011's Seeking Justice. Um, a lot of fun as ever recording with Troy um, and always a pleasure when he stops by to talk all things Cage and otherwise. Now there are um, a lot of tangents, a lot of things covered in this episode um, but we start off on a trip down memory lane, we move on to the Razzie history of Nicolas Cage and more pressingly Sylvester Stallone. Uh, We talk about Cage's open grave in New Orleans and how his performance in this film might actually be a little bit better than what you would expect. Um, It's a great episode. Can't wait for you to listen to it. But as ever, let's get the admin out of the way as well. Um, If you're discovering the episode for the first time or you are a returning listener, a returning passenger on the journey to True Cage Nirvana, um, if you could sort of share the episode, if you've enjoyed it, leave a rating on one of the platforms that allows you to leave a rating like Podchase, like Apple, uh, give it a follow on that streaming platform as well. That would be tremendously helpful. 
and shoot me a follow over on Twitter as well at cage underscore podcast. The links are in the description. I think we're on the literally like 898, 899 followers on Twitter now. So we're uh, on that teasing, teething line of 900, as close to a thousand followers on Twitter as you've ever been. The end of year goal is still very much on. Would love to have you over there and um, talking about Cage and all such wonderful things. But with that said, thank you for listening. This is a great episode you've got coming up to you. Hope you enjoy it. If you do again, reach out on the socials. Let me know what you thought. And let's get into it. It's episode 62. It's Seeking Justice. Daryl Edge. Troy Hewitt. Duh. Let's get right into the thick of 2011 with the action thriller Seeking Justice. This week, Cage stars as Will Gerard, an English teacher who is offered swift justice by a stranger after his wife is assaulted, but on the condition he repays the debt down the line. Making a return on the journey to true Cage Nirvana this week to see if Seeking Justice is justice served or if some things should just never be found is writer, comedian, and again, friend, Troy Hewitt. Troy, welcome back. How are you doing? Ah, oh, mate, it is an absolute pleasure to be here. I've been waiting for this moment. Ever since I took you up on the promise, actually. Well, not promise, but uh, on the on the offer of returning. Has that happened? Did, with the, has everyone been doing that? Uh, we've had a few returns so far. Um, nice. We've got yeah, some more returns lined up at the point of recording. Um, so we're sort of getting this we're getting this 2021 padded out. We're coming out of lockdown, hopefully, maybe, sort of. It's also, it might be coming home. Um, yeah, a lot of things yeah, might, yeah. might be happening. Um, oh, it's, it's always in a perpetual state of might be coming home. It's just been <laughs> lost in transit for so long. <laughs> I was thinking, obviously, me having no football knowledge whatsoever, I was just trying to reason with myself, like, how can it come home when realistically it's always been in our hearts? Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> If, if you know, like a tumor, <laughs> <laughs> deep, deep guttural, yeah. yeah, you know, no fan of Boris Johnson myself. But if he made that address, I'd think it maybe there is something profound to this man that we've just not. What if he made the address that football has always been in our hearts like a tumor? <laughs> yeah, if he just, just <laughs> maybe just got a writer and stuff. Maybe if I started writing for him. Um, I would say like f- like football is a sickness, and we've got yeah. a deep um, camera. Then f- potentially he would lose votes because he doesn't seem like that's happening anytime soon for some reason. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's it's so weird. It's kind of like it doesn't. I'm I'm, I'm concerned. I think my theory is, and um, I know a weird political tangent. We've gone off like a minute. Yeah. In. Um, yeah. My theory is with the conservatives, if that there are. A group that came into power like eleven years ago, and I think eleven years ago they said, "Oh shit, right, okay, this this wasn't supposed to happen. We don't know what we're doing. Maybe if we just make a slow, concerted effort, just to get things a little bit wrong, we start to lose some public confidence." But then the public was kind of just masochistically whipping their own bats, going, "Yeah, I'll have some more <laughs> of that." And then eleven years ago, later, the the conservatives are like, "I don't, I don't understand what more we can do to lose They're the like, vote." Yeah. They're just lapping it up. They are lapping it up out there. <laughs> <laughs> Supping piss like a desperate pauper on the yeah. street. <laughs> you know, was, I actually heard something the other day. And I, I, um, Any little fact checkers out there, you might want to get your fact checking booklet out for this. 
I basically um, I had heard that if you exclude Blair's back-to-back wins out of a 100-year period in this country, 84, and this is where the fact-checking, because it may be 81, but it's between 81 and 84 years have been conservative. So we're essentially a one-party state, and we have been for a century, you know. And that's uh, <laughs> just say something about the national temperament. You know, we don't expect that better for ourselves. Like you say, there's a masochistic element to it. Um, it's just so... It's the heartening to think that, I mean, for the majority of our lifetimes, we had a... I don't know if I'm... Well, you know, we had a few terms of Blair. I don't know if I can really realistically call them good terms because a lot of that was very much a rack. Um, but, you know... We exactly, had, yeah, yeah. There was a kind of Tory light element to it. <laughs> we haven't ever really had a red whiff at any point. Um, no. In our life. There was a there was a smite pong around the Jeremy Corbyn area. <laughs> <laughs> that you could the, the stank of socialism was, was uh, creeping through the vents of the university common rooms, but then uh, <laughs> they got yeah. him in the end. I was just university in the absolute heyday of the uh, the coalition era. I got in the year before the fees went up, so I was in like <laughs> going around like three grand again. Just, la- just lashing yeah. my tongue around, just like finger gunning at people when the year after came in, flipping them yeah. right off. Um, <laughs> st- uh, still paying that back though, the interest creeping up every single year that I can't pay. Yeah. I, um, I, I went on, because um, I ended up uh, doing a, a totally random master's degree when the loans came out. Because I was like, right, well, there's a loan for it now. Sign me up, Johnny. <laughs> so, so I ended up doing, and actually I say random, it's very interesting. It was in psychoanalysis, which was, was random because it wasn't part of my background. Now, this brief period of about like six months when I thought, I'm just going to be a psychoanalyst now. I'm going to give up on everything I've ever like planned for and dreamed of and do that. Um, but no, instead, I've just got shackled up with that debt. So I feel it, feel it twice as hard. <laughs> got the BA and the MA coming out like, <laughs> I wonder what it is like sort of post-university at least the undergraduate years when you when I think there's maybe your brain is still like oh I, I kind of still want to learn because I think it wasn't until after I left when my brain was like you know what I think now I want to apply myself at this point I should stress um, I graduated um, 24 years of age depressed with a 2-2 BA in comedy writing and performance from comedy <laughs> from Southampton Silent University and, and if I can do it so can you <laughs> I <laughs> wish a 15 point program <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could say that you could do it as well but in my third year the course got cancelled <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> um, so no, mate, just... that's just because you did it better than anyone else would ever be able to do it that particular tutu in, in comedy well, <laughs> writing and performance and, so they and... said we'll have to fold it in only uh, like one or two breakdowns in the third year, standard course leader. Like, Daryl, you've plagiarised this essay. I thought you were one of the good boys. And you know that Daryl loves a good plagiarised essay. Yeah. <laughs> you know I love a good wiki copy and paste. Um, Was it straight off, mate? Clip, clip. <laughs> I didn't realise they had a system that can just like scan sentences for like... Oh. It can just like match websites, and I was like, just basically caught in the minority report of academia. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. tail between tail between legs caught, sussed, wrapped on the wrist. Um, hey, they should have invested more of their money into the content of the course <laughs> <laughs> rather than some sort of like MI five inspired tracking device <laughs> <laughs> for the saddest students that you possibly could have congregated in one condensed area of the UK. 
Um, <laughs> although I think I think there's still a comedy course going on in Salford, and uh, I think they're doing quite well. So if you're if you're specifically on the Salford comedy course, good for you. Um, there's a Falmouth one, I think, as well. Because um, it's a comedy masters. I think Ooh. it's all creeping up, you know. But I'd noticed that the other day. It's interesting because and- I think my course was like the first to do it. Um, and then I think other places started creeping on. Like, oh, maybe there is some bath spa as well. Yeah, they have one now. A lot of places, a lot of more um, quote unquote reputable places um, are <laughs> are offering <laughs> are offering <laughs> this. I forgot you went to Bath. I think the other day yeah. I was I was thinking of something you, you said um, in sixth form. And for the listeners, you know, me and Troy, <laughs> we go back back. Um, yeah, all the way back actually. I remember like sixth form when. You know our um, you know, esteemed sort of head of sixth form, Mr. Tim Dowling, the great Tim Dowling, um, was very much the um, the stalwart and the driving force of like students going to sixth form and then also continuing that to further education in university. I remember that you went to like an open day. I can't remember if you went um, where it was that you went, but you said that you came back and you just overheard these really like upper class students. Saying like the credit crunch just hit us really hard. My mother's had to shop at Tesco now. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why. That really, really stuck with me. Um, yeah, I, I actually do sort of remember that, but I can't remember where it was. <laughs> I can't remember. Uh, oh I no, just, wasn't it? I think I went to Royal. It was Royal Holloway because that's that regarded as like the sort of dropout uni for like rich kids that couldn't get into and like uh, Cambridge or Oxford or Durham or whatever. So they end up in Royal Holloway where they can retain that sense of elite uh, status, but like it's not reflected in the quality of the education. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so that's where it is. <laughs> I guess that's a question though, you know, where, where do the elite go when the elite can't get in? Um, and yeah. Scraping the barrel like, uh, <laughs> like chumps like me are. Like chumps like yeah. me who've um, basically flunked the Ray levels because I thought, well, it worked for GCSE um, and just decided not to revise. And now here we are. I just remember dropping out of sixth form psychology, sort of speaking of that. Um, and then uh, my teacher at the time, um, Mr. Heggett, he was known in our school for being just like a bit of a, uh, a London lad, sort of straight talking. He could just like mm. rinse any student. I said to him, oh, I'm going to have to drop psychology. I've not done very well. And he looked me in the eye, and for five seconds he went bye, and then he turned and went into his classroom, <laughs> <laughs> just cheerio um, on your way. But I remember, yeah, I was trying to get him to uh, have an arm wrestle uh, <clears throat> with. Um, I was like some sort of Don King character, and I was trying to get like a Mr. <laughs> to have an arm wrestle with uh, an old school friend of ours, James uh, Davison. I, I still alive. To remember this? If you're listening, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and. Um, yeah, but Mr. Hegarty, uh, he had none of it, man. He was just like, you're trying to get me with that weak social pressure. <laughs> I felt so small. <laughs> He's a man that has never once caved. Yeah. Um, I remember that we, when we used to make our, I don't know, sort of smosh-inspired sort of videos in, like, high school, um, we, for- <laughs> we forced him to watch one, and he just looked at us both and he went, boys. That's two minutes. I'll never get back. No critique <laughs> other than that. And then we made him a, a weirdly, can we say, an almost unintentionally sexual <laughs> apology video that was called I, Sly Italian Snakes. 
and it was just a minute of us to like an an iMovie free track. It was like, and it was just us lashing our tongues. Did you say sorry, Hegarty on it or something as well? (laughs) Sly Italian snakes, text faded out, faded in. Sorry, Hegarty. Yeah, yeah. I remember that. God. It was, was just <laughs> just weirdly inappropriate for like 16, 17-year-olds, and we just didn't clock it at all. We posted it to YouTube, uh, let those weak views come in, and then I think Hegarty <laughs> rightfully distanced himself from us after that point. We, um, I don't know if we touched upon this in, uh, in my, during my first appearance on Cage Rage, but... Um... We, when we were marketing, we used to be like uh, really efficient marketeers, like in the in the early days. Um, but we didn't have much technical knowledge, so we managed to get the video on YouTube, as a you know, all thanks to the media course at uh, Chase Terrace <laughs> Technology College. Um, but then what we had to do was try and promote it. So we were going around, and I'd printed off like slips of paper that had the URL link on, and then we put them all up, and we were pushing them through the grills in people's lockers, <laughs> and expecting they were just going like. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what you just don't get that from the young lads nowadays you know they've I mean? lost sight and uh, you just don't get you just don't get that spark that drive from the uh, from the zoom generation the uh, the zedders yeah, exactly, yeah. oh, it's all it's all bloody tiktok now isn't it <laughs> you can just post the message and it's out there we grafted god damn yeah. it we locker to locker you realize it took us about two lunch times <laughs> I, I seem to remember that we used we used a whole hour, an actual allocated lesson of teacher planned time to just go out and promote our work. <laughs> yeah. you know, and, and for what as well? I mean, I guess like looking back, we wanted to be um, famous in the microcosm of uh, Chase Terrace Technology College. Because <laughs> being viral back then for like a couple of small town boys wasn't really a thing that people talked about, was it really? viral like there were smosh and things but they were like they seemed legit because they're american um yeah it's such an interesting thing because like you know i think we could sort of make this connection to to like cage because now he has like trailers that go viral all the time and even with new trailers dropping like pig that's one that that's gone viral a lot of people are talking about it but way back in you know quote unquote the day like the, the mid to late 2000s Viral wasn't a thing. You, you just no. one day a video would just have it would be shared on some American blog uh, websites mm. or like Tosh point oh, and then it was a time when like a clip show on on channel <laughs> five hosted by Alex Zane or something. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> Hundred hilarious most sports bloopers straight yeah. to DVD hosted by David Seaman. Exactly, um, <laughs> and it just wasn't a thing. Like you just had to work for it there was no understanding of the algorithm that like you had to go out there and grind and graft but it makes me think though what if one of our early escapades into the uh the social media realm of youtube back then what if we had gone viral like what if we got hundreds of thousands or millions of views we would have changed we yeah could, we could have, we could have changed empire. the face of it <laughs> yeah exactly, yeah, yeah it would have been us we'd be the, the logan pauls of the world stepping in the <laughs> ring with floyd mayweather <laughs> imagine if we were in the, <laughs> me or you in the ring with mayweather somehow going like me like like the this lithe tall slank pale man getting knocked out in the first 10 seconds held up by mayweather because he's got like a million dollar deal hinging on the result of the fight tagging me in though I'll just quickly leapfrog over the ropes, get similarly sparked out. <laughs> Two weak lads just held up on Mayweather's million-dollar arms. 
Yeah, exactly. So that could have been us. But you know what? We chose a different path. It was uh, more rooted in time and space. We wanted uh, to, to be the biggest names in the Chase Terrace technology car, at least the sixth form. And I would say by the end of it, we achieved that. <laughs> <laughs> at least for the, for the graduating year of 2010. <laughs> <laughs> Grassroots boys since day one, 2010. Yeah, yeah. And now here we are, um, you know, 11 years after the fact, Discuss, <laughs> discussing an act that many would say is having a grassroots revival in many ways. Um, oh, sure. But, but here we are with a film that, you know, by this point, 2011, I think you would have been in the first, second year of your university endeavour. I yep. would have been, I think, awaiting to go to university, 2011, seeking justice drops. Um, and this is the film we were sort of saying off record, um, which is weirdly and sadly significant in the... Um, the pantheon of Cage. This was a film that, while he had some you know, some big cinematic hits sort of in and around this time, 2011 was really start um, of a period for him where his films were uh, heading straight to DVD, straight to video on demand. This is a film I distinctively remember. Like I went to HMV in Southampton. It might have been 2012 when it came out on DVD. And this was a period of time for me where every other month it felt like there was a brand new Cage film on shelves you'd never heard of it and i just remember the um the, the cover of the dvd just being like him in like a all like all black attire with this weird sort of goatee just running away from an explosion um <laughs> and i think for us in the uk it was just called justice um i think justice in the in the uk seeking justice in america um so i just and hungry rabbit jumps as well i didn't it somewhere that was yeah. That was set to be the original title, but I think as we'll get into, I think that would have just given <laughs> far too much away. Um, so just uh, you know, this is the you know peak Cage in the financial distress era. The the uh, oh, he just takes any role Cage era. Um, but like I said, this was this was sort of around the same time when he had Ghost Rider Two was out in the cinema. He had like the animated The Crudes came out in the cinema as well. So he wasn't completely down in the dumps at this point but um was was this one for you that you'd heard of when it dropped or was this one that you didn't find out until sort of much later um yeah i didn't find out about it until you messaged me actually saying that the upcoming vacancy for um (laughs) is seeking justice so yeah this one passed me by as it happens I think it's um, i think it's indicative of the the film itself it looks like when it released in the u.s um, in March of 2011, um, it went straight to number 27, barely registered. Um, I think tragically, it was unable to best Alvin and the Chipmunks Chipwrecked, which had been in the top 30 for 26 <laughs> weeks at that point. Um, I think. What are they doing? What was that? That would have been like the second sequel or something. I think it was the third one because I think it was Alvin and the Chipmunks. And I feel like the second one was called the Squeakwall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a, yeah. So it was it was after the Squeakwall. It was a. <laughs> <laughs> so they were still riding hard for the dark, for the for the um, big fans at that point. The big and uh, obviously there was a lot of them. Yeah, the Chipmunks fans, the 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 Chipmunks cinematic universe. <laughs> 
Well, I think, you know, I think anything with a film like Alvin and the Chipmunks, after the first film, you have to admit that you're out of ideas because the status quo has been set up. You understand yeah. the characters. It's like, like some, <laughs> some Hollywood bigwig chomping on a cigar. What if the Chipmunks were on sand? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think it was... I don't know if he was in that film as well, but it was the guy, like Jason Lee, who was in like My Name Is Earl, who was having this oh yeah, um, weird chipmunk <laughs> renaissance of his own here as well. <laughs> I don't know if he did anything later, but I think for historical significance as well, it's also not that I'm saying that this is a direct um, factor as to why Seeking Justice went to 27, but on the same day, uh, 21 Jump Street released and went straight to number one as well. Um, Okay, well, yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, yeah, maybe not causation, but there is a correlation there. There's always, I think this is just a cage apologist in me. There's always, there's always a reason. That I will, <laughs> there's always an excuse. Um, I think just before this as well, he had Drive Angry released as well. And this was sort of still when um, I think 3D was still kind of popular fading out. I think we clocked on that it wasn't the... Um, the next big thing that cinema promised it to be. Um, then you go straight from like a 3D kind of all right film to just straight to DVD seeking justice. I mean, if you, um, up and down. Sorry, I was going to say, if you, if you had access to some sort of time traveling portal, do you think you would go back and fix the top 30 every time so that uh, a cage film could rise to the to number one spot? Like murdering the director of 21 Jump Street taking everyone out <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. I mean, the ultimate traveling cage fanboy flick you know? <laughs> they have to be murdered there's no other there's no yeah, other yeah, yeah. solution just me on that grassy knoll aiming at like directors <laughs> trying to make it in the industry yeah. clank um it's kind of weird maybe i've just been watching too much like loki on disney plus at the moment and their big thing is obviously um this idea that they're protecting the sacred timeline, the time variance authority. So I'm just oh, yeah, kind of scared yeah. that there'd be this like future cage foundation that would come back and just, you know, <laughs> zap me with a stick, eliminate me. Like, no, you've got to, you've yeah, got you to let, let it. Time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you have to let this happen. It's like, you know, we don't, we don't get to Mandy unless we have a seeking justice. We don't get to <laughs> Willy's Wonderland unless we've got trespass. You have to let this play its course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but obviously no... you'd be so wrapped up in the fervor of it all at that point you'd, you'd take your own life before you know <laughs> you'd double barrel straight to the head but... <laughs> it's like you know there's this cage can get re you know cage can get back in the award conversation but to do it you have to take your own life and i'm there with this fucking like quandary <laughs> i was like there'd be no there'd be no decision time you'd just be straight <laughs> it's like load it full clip full clip yeah <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and then yeah, yeah, yeah. if i think if the cage gets nominated and or wins an award you know post this episode being released um and then i just stop <laughs> releasing episodes <laughs> i just want to say to the listeners you know what i had to do the journey exactly. to true cage nirvana it takes many directions some of them require immense sacrifice yeah. um and in the Hajj that everybody would do to recognise Cage Nirvana in future, the sort of like cagist tradition of Hajj, everyone would stop by your tomb as like a sort of on the journey, you know, <laughs> and they'd all sort of leave a wreath on it, like as just a significant part of the Cage Nirvana. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder what my sort of um, 
my 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 offering would be like would it be like a wreath of flowers, just like a half opened can of like barbecue Pringles. Yeah. Uh, what, <laughs> what would really signify my just the empty DVD cases of Cage films? I think because <laughs> obviously you'd have been buried. You'd have been buried with the DVDs. <laughs> <laughs> I think you know. I've always joked for like my for, you know for when I I pass from this mortal coil, I've um said to my partner that. You know, um, I will have her read a pre-written script from myself. And I said, you can't deviate from the lines. That's to be decided. But also I want a, like a fully working, replicated sort of medieval catapult to launch me into the, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> into the sunset. Maybe just have some like CEX bargain bucket cage DVDs with me to, to take yeah. me into the next realm. <laughs> so it's like, like a rainbow of uh, Cage's back catalogue and your sort of gradually decaying body. <laughs> A beautiful the thing is, though, like lapse. you've got a lot of confidence in the technology, mate. Because uh, I reckon what would happen is that the, the um, catapult would launch, and you just sort of dribble down the side. <laughs> People <are> like, <laughs> 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 completely stuck, like, <laughs> yeah. your My... body thrown into the crowd, <laughs> <laughs> backwards into the pews and pulpits, on <laughs> 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 a distant yeah. relative. Oh. That's it. <laughs> through a stained glass window there's just like <laughs> through a perfect stained glass effigy of like saint paul himself i yeah, think yeah. in yeah. in some ways that's i think the perfect legacy is like for me to you know my surviving family and friends just to deal with my mess and that's the way in some, <laughs> res in some respects i think i want to go out i'll be there with a dustpan and brush mate doing my bit <laughs> my humble bit on the side <laughs> well my faint grades, ginger locks, just like dusting up from the um, yeah. <laughs> the altar. <laughs> I'll the take it home and grow a new one. <laughs> <laughs> and then we'll then we'll pick up from where we left off. Cage will be on his six thousandth film by then, you know. <laughs> Cage is forever. That's that's what I truly believe in, if nothing else. Um, it, something else I you know believe in the. So I just gazed to my phone just to like get my notes here. I just got a text from IKEA saying their sale ends on the 18th. So maybe <laughs> after this, so just... we'll be pausing this one here. <laughs> we'll be pausing the uh, recorder here just to look up some um, some sweet smorgasbord of deals. Yeah. Um, I was looking up as well. You might have seen this. I think this is also indicative of the error. Um, Rotten Tomatoes gave this a 28%. Uh, the Overall review said, seeking justice, nothing more than a typical pot boiler and another phoned-in performance by Nicolas Cage. I mean, again, we'll get into this, but I know off record, you were saying that you know a lot of elements of this film were impressing you with his, his performance here. Yeah. Yeah. So I think we can we can broadly say, you know, we'll get into it, but um, Rotten Tomatoes, you got some explaining to do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think the other thing of note as well, um, this was unfortunately for 2011, along with this in Ghost Rider to uh, Spirit of Vengeance, Cage was nominated for a Razzie uh, for Worst Actor in 2013. Um, oh, I what, think... for the double whammy for, for both films? Yeah. The, the... Or just because it's annual performance? Yeah, the Golden Raspberry seemed to clock it on... Um, the, the general effort of the year, so you kind of judged on all your films rather than just one. Um, no prisoners. I think 
I think it's notable to say though, because I got curious because this is this is not the first time he's cropped up uh, for Razzie nominations. It won't be the last. But between 2007 and 2017, for a 10-year stretch, uh, Cage received nine Razzie nominations for this in different categories. So almost he was averaging one Razzie a year. I yeah. should stress that he has he never won. Move the Razzies. <laughs> <laughs> Room. <laughs> I'm the world's most nominated Razzie actor. Yeah. I think it's important to note that he has never won a Razzie for better or worse. That is worse. That's full on worse. <laughs> I, 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 you know, I'd like to be king of the Razzies, widely regarded as the worst commercial like actor that there's ever been. And I've got the uh, you know the gold to back it up. But if you're just nominated, that means you're amongst the worst actors ever. <laughs> you, you, you can't even use it to your advantage. You're a bronze performance bad actor. I mean, how yeah, do you yeah. <laughs> how do you sell that? I mean, I think interestingly for this particular year, there for uh, for worst actor, it is worth noting that he lost out to Adam Sandler for That's My Boy. Significantly for Sandler, um, he would become the third person to win that award in two consecutive years, um, only previously toppled by Paulie Shaw and Sylvester Stallone. Um, what what year was Stallone? Because he had some good... Uh, then again, he's also done some stinkers, hasn't he? A couple of golden stinkers, Pat. <laughs> I think I'll have to look up like what... Um, Stallone got it for. Um, one might have been. Do you think it'll be high risk if I try and search that now? I'm going to. I think. Listener. I think I've just got the Wikipedia page. This might take a while. The list of awards and nominations received by uh, by Stallone. Yeah. yeah okay. Um, all right, right. Oh, it's under the list of other uh, other awards and nominations. Not one worth. <laughs> right, Golden Raspberry Awards. Uh, we go back to ah uh, eighty-five for the first one, where he won Worst Actor for Rhinestone. Um, we then go to eighty-six, where he jointly won um, Worst Actor uh, and Worst Director for Rocky Four. He also got Worst Actor for Rambo: First Blood Part Two. Which I feel maybe a controversial decision. The the the, the Rocky films always have so much good faith. Um, yes, he would later get in eighty nine. Now I should stress he was nominated in eighty seven and eighty eight. Didn't win for both Cobra and Over the Top for Worst Actor. Comes back in big style eighty nine. Worst Actor Rambo three, um, and then. I don't, I don't know. Carol, if I, can you get, can you see this? Because I, I, I can now see. I can see what you're you're talking about. Are you looking at the year two thousand? Uh, not two thousand. I'm still going from like the eighties here for the golden raspberries for uh, Stallone. In Stallone's, I mean, if you wanted to, you'll get there eventually. But his year two thousand, he he got hit with a worst actor of the century. Oh um, Jesus. And he's been, he won it for Assassins, Cliffhanger, Lock Up Cobra, Daylight, Demolition Man, Judge Dredd, Rocky Five. I'm pretty sure it's all of his films. <laughs> well, it's, well it's, yeah, yeah. It's but, but in the 21st century. Definitely significant because painfully in 1990, the Raspberries awarded him with Worst Actor of the Decade. 
I think for the eighties. <laughs> and it, some of the films there, you got Cobra Lockup, Over the Top, Rambo: First Blood Part Two, Rambo Three, Rocky Four, Rhinestone, Tango, and Cash. Um, and then he got he got worst actor in ninety three for the film we all know, Stop or My Mom Will Shoot. Um, got worst screen couple shared with uh, shared with Sharon Stone and tied with Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt for Into the Vampire uh, for worst screen couple. Again, as you said, worst actor of the century. For na- and the, the award was dubbed for 99.5% of everything he has ever done, ever in all caps. Um, but then I think it's, you know, he gets one in 2004, worst supporting actor for Spy Kids 3D. Game over. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and then the Raspberry Redeemer Award 2016 <laughs> uh, from all time Razzie champ to award contender for Creed I think it's important to know with the Razzies I know they are you know they are a bit of a tongue in cheek award but they do uh, award people and honour people who have made a significant comeback uh, they did this for Eddie Murphy as well for he got like a lot of critical panning from um <laughs> from the from the, the Raspberries and I think he got a, a redemption award for Dolomite is my name a few years ago as well. So, you know, you can come They're back from some this. Latitude to come back in style. <laughs> like if, if you get a Razzie, you know, it is possible to come back. I think that's the uh, that's the important point here. But um, you know, as we know, eventually, you know, this is a bit of a, a dip for Cage. He will come back ten years later. But we, you know, let's, let's let's get into the meat, the nitty gritty of seeking justice here. And as we were touching upon before, there with the Razzie giving him the nomination for worst actor, this is one that you disagreed with. So let's, you know, let's get more into that. Um, you know, yes, you, you enjoyed his performance here. I did. I, I like. I found it quite emotionally impactful at points, which is not, you know, and I'm talking about the smushy emotions here. Like he can definitely. He can big. He can get you in a kind of frenzy, can't he? Cage. He's definitely capable of resonating with those uh, top level emotions. <laughs> then <laughs> he can get your heart pumping and your palms sweating and so on. But with this, he sort of made me. He, he touched me. His performance touched me at certain points in this film. But I think overall, you know, for what my opinion is worth, looking at it, I just felt like I believed him a lot more so in this than I have done previously. So I don't know what those Razzies, I think someone in the Razzie organization has clearly got a bit of beef with Cage to do that. I think I agree with that. Like, I don't think Cage was necessarily bad in this. I think one of the scenes we we um, touched on some before we start recording as well, there was that scene, um, obviously the crux of the film, where his uh, wife, Laura, played by January Jones, she's sort of assaulted after like a, a, a music recital. Um, she's assaulted sexually. Um, and then there's that, scene where he so he sees the messages on his phone he sort of races to the hospital he sees his wife just like a battered bruised just an absolute sort of state sedated in the hospital bed and that moment i think you know almost part of me was kind of i think preempting like a cage like oh god my wife oh exactly that's what i was i think that's why i, I mentioned that moment specifically because it caught me off guard yeah it showed that he can access that more intimate performance style too yeah, it was such. I think a lot of um, he was kind of restraint, a lot of, lot of restrained sort of performance here. I think there are points when um, I guess he can kind of understand it. I kind of found that um, his characterization was just kind of quickly escalating from just like 
um, panicked, don't know what I'm doing in the situation, to just being a dick to everyone, um, and just being just being really just like flipping them off, and just uh, he's he's just hitting school kids. He's just sort of suddenly all over. Um, you know what's good about that? So so for that is a particular point. I mean, there's this like troublemaker, you know, this this kid with the dreads. He's always causing issues in the class, and uh, Cage's character Will is an English teacher, so he's constantly having to deal with him. But then at the high point of, of Cage's, uh, you know, confusion and uh, anger and fear, he just sparks this kid out, knocks him down, single overhand right, haymaker shot. But he's told that he's going to be suspended for three weeks. Um, <laughs> as if that was a harsh punishment. They're like, it's a minimum three weeks. And you're thinking, that's a jail sentence, mate. <laughs> There's so many witnesses. He just smacked a student clean. Took his, took his head right off. <laughs> Smacked a student clean, and uh, this this student has been, you know, I think thorn in the side, maybe not sort of the best term, but just like, like I said, a troublemaker. He's just not paying attention to lessons. He's always got his phone out, and then um, there's that one scene where he's like, "Okay, give me your phone. You shouldn't have your phone because they've got like a metal detector to take phones off of kids in that American high school." I don't know if this was like a post you know like a 9-11 thing that they they did in high schools or i think it was knives and guns as well though isn't it because they uh yeah checking for weapons checking for weapons and i think i don't know if it was like um like a blackberry phone but he takes the phone off him and he just like scratched into this like almost microsoft paint app on his phone just like fuck you (laughs) (laughs) f-u-k-u and just handed it over but like obviously at this point a lot of emotions been boiling over he's got guy pierce's uh, character uh, Simon, who's just been like harassing him to like pay up on his side of the debt. So he overhand writes him, and then um, Harold Perini's character Jimmy is like, like <laughs> almost, almost like the, the jaded sort of lieutenant of the force. So he's like, I'm going to need like your badge, your eraser, your whiteboard marker. You got to hand him in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it just gets like a minimum three weeks. The kid, you'd think, you know, like this is like a like a mouthy, you know, like typical like punk ass kid. Thought that kid's going to press charges, doesn't, just takes it. Um, yeah, and even later on, he, he, by his own admission, maybe I had it coming. Well, <laughs> <laughs> his Cage's character would be like, fucking great, result. <laughs> Got so in like, his head. <laughs> the Cage is sort of like hot on the investigation trail at this point. He sees like this kid and like two of his like mates spray painting the corridors. Then he comes out and he's like, like I thought you got arrested. Um, he's like, yeah, I did. First degree murder. And it's like, well, I didn't see you if you didn't see me. And then it's like, yeah, that works. <laughs> just so, like, yeah, we've got an understanding now, haven't we? <laughs> this crazed teacher that knocked me out has now confessed to murder. And we're we kind of, we're buds now. We're bros. <laughs> we've got this kind of understanding. <laughs> it's like, me and you, we're different, but the same. Two yeah, sides yeah. of the same coin. So I think, you know, the, the, how he gets here... Um, obviously said like his wife Laura is uh, like just horribly attacked but then he gets approached um uh in like a weird almost like Fargo TV series X thing like that sort of um uh sits down all suited guy guy Pierce's character um and he's like look I represent uh an organization of people like concerned citizens we're taking sort of the uh, law and justice and order back into our own hands we're here to represent the people who have failed 
by the justice system in um and he sort of plays on the the emotional heartstrings and the grief-stricken element of cage here saying like, look um we know how this goes even if they catch the rapist he's gonna be back out on the streets he's gonna strike again and your wife laura she's gonna have to go through months and months of trials relive that trauma again and again have to face her attacker in the courts um have to see those snake skin shoes once more <laughs> you see them come in the snakes you choose of the rapist i'm like is there a more reprehensible brand of footwear than <laughs> you know what i mean if he was in moccasins or something that's, yeah. i think it was like Benefit of the doubt. i think before they get into sort of the whole idea that there's more to the um the organization that meets the eye i thought like oh you know maybe this is going to be some kind of like team up cage is going to learn and they're going to go after this the rapist that's going to be the yeah. crux of the film a revenge made, sort of flick. like a revenge thriller yeah and they made a real point of like having like a hard focus on those snakeskin boots yeah, 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 i was yeah, like look- <laughs> all right now this is <laughs> slapping on the ground like this is this is like the villain's like calling card this is his tell you know like, we've got to yeah. search new orleans um, for the one person, somebody, who... yeah, that's yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I thought it was going to be. You just see the police <laughs> one day, like lazily hanging up on some sort of veranda, and then they know. <laughs> <laughs> like two years later, like the boots, the boots. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but um, you know, he's quickly dealt with. But this is this is kind of the thing though, because I thought like at the start, like this um, sort of first like twenty minutes when when. Uh, Simon's character is having this chat with Will and he's like, look, you know, we, you know, we're not going to ask you for any money and like, we are going to ask you to repay this down the line. It's completely your decision. But I thought like at this point here, it's like, this is like a, like a really interesting, like uh, yeah. dilemma, a really interesting situation to be delved into. Um, I thought, you know, if they, if they were able to kind of explore that a bit more, I think the film would have been like really interesting to watch. And they kind of, you know, um, he sort of tags in, he's like, I accept the offer. Um, and then he, you know, he, the, the rapist gets killed. Um, and in that scene, it's just a guy who I don't think is like a contract killer by any stretch. I think it seems to be this revolving door and never ending cycle of other people who are in on the organization, repaying the debts of other people to repay their debts. It's kind of this. Um, yeah, yeah, it's like a network of like. What's what you think is a network of vengeful husbands, like you know, originally all the people who've been wronged. But this yeah. is definitely like you know, it's male orientated. It's written by men about men for men, really. And like because there's the January Jones character, she's so painfully one-dimensional. Like obviously, the, from a feminist critique point of view, I mean, the only woman in it gets savagely sexually assaulted and then mm. spends the rest of the film like confused and vulnerable, and uh, that's essentially all it is. But uh, yeah. you know, but she does play cello, and that's what they put in there. To <laughs> like, we need to give her a slightly interesting career. All right, yeah, okay, she plays cello. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I thought that I felt like they were going to do something with the January Jones character um, because um, they have sort of like the sixth months later. This is um, you know after the rapist has been dispatched by the organization and it's six months later and she voices the um you know the wants to all she's like you know i think i think maybe to its credit they don't she's not suddenly healed and like, there's still the trauma there um yeah. and she says you know i want a gun but will's like no um no guns <laughs> no guns but then she's taking like the secret like gun shooting lessons and like good got the gun range 
I thought, oh, like, okay, well, maybe they're trying to do something to rebuild this character. But then they kind of just forget about all of that until the very end of the film. Um, yes, yeah, yeah. And she just, because she, like, all of the kind of uh, male, I would say maybe men, men writing women is a popular Twitter page, isn't it? Have you seen that? It's like um, no. examples. Yes, yeah, so it's examples from literature of men writing women, but just doing it from. Oh, kind of, obviously know. misinformed of, or, or like it's just male projection onto like, this is how women think, blah, blah, blah. Um, but there was a yeah. the bit where she hits all those milestones, like obviously Cage is acting a little bit shady. So then she goes to seek confidence in one of her girlfriends and they're like, is he cheating on you? <laughs> it's like, you know, <laughs> all of those things. Just, she's like, I don't know. It's just to make her seem so confused and kind of one, just one note really. Yeah. Except uh, for at the end, obviously, and then the whole... We'll get to that, of course. Yeah. But, um, when you say the friend there, Trudy, played by the um, criminally underutilized Jennifer Carpenter um, <laughs> in this film, she's her her role is literally either to answer questions that Jimmy has later in the film, or be an emotional support uh, for Laura. Um, but like I said, at the start of the film, it's very intriguing. There's a lot of mystery to the, the organization. You know, mm-hmm. you know, is Simon the top man? Is there more elements to this? Um, but as we were also saying earlier as well, um, any time the, the organization, usually it's always Simon that deals with Will's character. Anytime mm-hmm. he wants him to do something, he has to give him like a 20 step, like monotonous bullet point, really um, yeah. irritating plan. It's like, it's like it's micromanagement, isn't it? <laughs> it's like, go to the, go to the oncology department, go to the vending machine. You're going to buy a forever bar. You're going to buy two forever bars. Um, yeah, yeah. And then this, in my notes, oh. was the most tense vending machine scene in cinematic history. <laughs> the, the, the film is trying to force this idea of tension and suspense, the idea that Will is being watched at all points here. Um, and you've got the bald guy who's sat down, you don't know what his deal is. The cop's watching him for about five minutes. And you mm-hmm. think, like, what, well, is the cop in on it as well? And then he buys the two forever bars. And then the cop's like, Oh, I thought you were going to go for the healthy option if you're going to get two. And then he yeah, yeah. completely nothing. A complete nothing. A wet fish. I was thinking, is this, is this just some sort of ploy by the vending machine operator to revitalize a dying industry? You know? <laughs> <laughs> You've got to buy two. <laughs> just awesome confectioner's master conspiracy. Like, you know? <laughs> big, Bassett, the, like. <laughs> the, the, big t- the big twist is that uh, Guy Pearce's character is in the pocket of Big Bass, Big Bassett. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Big vending machines. This is all a ploy to revitalize the vending industry. Big um, Bassett and the Haribo boys. <laughs> <laughs> Big Bassett and the Harry boys. Um, yeah, yeah, because it even it even happens again later. He's like, go into the convenience store, buy a pack of gum. <laughs> it's just trying to increase revenue around the sort of uh, <laughs> <fictionary> industry. <laughs> Like all of these steps are just like I think, given the gravity of the situation, if he just called uh, Will, is like I need you to meet me outside now. Like I think Will still would have done it. Obviously, he has his hesitations at the start because he's like, right now you've got to repay me. I need you to kill this guy. He's a, he's a sex offender. He's like a child molester. Like um, I need you to child, kill. Yeah, this. yeah, pornographer. As well, child pornographer. Oh, yeah. like he's oh, he's the, the facilitator, the gifter. Yeah, yeah. Um, he's more highly qualified than your <laughs> average molester. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Not to shed light on it, but you know. 
I think to be fair though, like maybe that's just you know for better or worse, my lack of understanding of that area of like depravity. But when he said pornographer, I think I thought, oh, he just means molester. But then they delved in later. It's like, no, he's like, he's the big basset of um, facilities yeah. of children. Yeah, like the worst, the worst, like the bottom barrel of society. Like, Which to be fair, probably has links to big basset because if those two join <laughs> forces, there's, you know, confectionery. <laughs> oh, God, like... Your horrible, t- typical, get, c- follow the trail of confectionery, Hansel and Gretel, get in the back of the yeah, van. Yeah, Ugh, yeah. Awful. I know they sponsored by Maltesers or something. <laughs> but then, yeah, as we said, you know, this point in the film, you know, the, the rapist has been killed, you know, um, mm-hmm. they've said, you know, to Will, look, this is the way this works. You know, you're part of the organisation now, whether you want it, you've you've eaten those two confectionery bars. Um so it says, like, you know, give you this letter. And I think it's important to know, I didn't, I don't think they're credited as such in the film, but in the credits, they've got his term, Simon's Two Goons. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them played by, um, I think he goes by the stage name, like Irony something, but he played T-Dog in the first two or three seasons of The Walking Dead. Mm-hmm. Um, the goons are actually named um, Scar and Cancer. Ah, is that because scar's got a scar and cancer's got cancer i I don't know like i think it's just a background thing like maybe they were wrong scar got scarred he i'm just trying to invent backstories now and then cancer's wife yeah died of cancer i don't know why would he join the organization (laughs) the police weren't able to arrest cancer um, yeah. He was failed by the justice system, but I thought you know what we should probably mention here, though, actually, Daryl, just before we go beyond that, because at the point where the rapist is murdered by one of the goons, do you know which goon killed him? Was it Scar or Cancer? I think it was a completely different goon, just someone else entirely in the organisation. But at, at the point that he murders the rapist, um, so just to take this back a little, he gets on the phone and he utters a very important phrase, uh, which is the hungry rabbit jumps. Yes, so... That's the first instance, I think, with the second instance, but the first would be, is like a flash forward, because that occurs in the opening five or ten minutes. Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, yeah, very good point. So the very first thing we get is like um, like a covertly recorded conversation of someone asking, like, you know, what does that phrase mean? Like, the hungry rabbit jumps. Um, and then this guy runs away, and then he's quickly dispatched um, by... I think it's, I can't remember which gun is which, it's Cancer or Scar, rams him off a multi-story um, <laughs> in the car, flips him over, he gets crushed, uh, just dispatching anyone who's basically leaking information about the organisation. Um, so that so that phrase comes into play. It's basically like um, waking a sleeper agent when you say that, because there's, there's a point where Cage's character gets arrested later, then this other detective who's like, I want to make you take a crack at him. I want to take a crack at him. Give me a crack. Oh boy. Yeah. He's like, like the child. And he plays that weird game of like word association to get sort of cage to spill. The day after Monday. <laughs> when the baby, when the baby's tired, he what? You know? <laughs> it's like, oh, cries. Your yeah. Purple. The hungry yeah. rabbit. Then zoom. <laughs> Jumps. <laughs> <laughs> It just so, and I think you should know that you, you're in deep, and you're just willfully giving information out just to anyone <laughs> who wants it at that point. 
Um, but then he he's told to kill um, basically this guy, this this journalist that we find out he's a journalist. We're led to believe he's a child pornographer, but this is basically just the organization covering their own back. This investigative journalist has been. Um, He's got information on him, as we later find out, saved on a, a copyrightable DVD format. Um, and also, you know, he's got, the guy's got a car that can play DVDs and just access all the menu features. I was like, yeah. way ahead of its time. So for, yeah, for the era, that was obviously top-notch stuff. <laughs> Incredibly forward-thinking. Um, but Will is um, very, very reluctant to do so. But then it's just... Um, and I think this is kind of something that happens with the film. Like it has that good idea at the start, you know, we're the organization that deals with the matters that the police cannot, that the justice system cannot. But then a lot of the film, I think cumulatively, is either um, Simon phoning meticulously boring instructions that Will has to follow, or yeah. it's just padding of Will trying to find <laughs> out about the organization. Taxes. Slide to the left. Slide to the right. Crisscross. Crisscross. In the pockets of Big Cha-Cha. Yeah, uh, yeah. And it's, I think there's just a lot of padding in this film. It could have shaved off, I think, 20, 20 or so minutes easily if it wasn't just for going here, trying to find out information, just looking around, um, which I think the film just, you know, after the first 30 minutes, it just really loses a lot of steam. And then it's Will just aggressively not doing what he's told. Um, I did make a note that the, a lot happened in the opening half hour. You know, I would, and as you say, there was so, so many at that point, it was like there were so many options that the film could travel down. And um, it took, it maybe took the, the path of least resistance, just a, a kind of easy ride after establishing something which could have been more complex. It, it could have been more intelligent. The story could have been fold, unfolded more intelligently. I think they just went for something which, you know, after they'd had a great setup, they went for an easy punchline. That's what I'd say. Yeah, I, I, I definitely agree with that. Like I said, great setup. I think really intriguing sort of first 20, 30 minutes. Um, yep. And then it's just so much padding, so much filler sort of is, Laura going to get abducted? Is she in danger? Just phone call after phone call after phone call. Deliver this letter to Santa Claus. Uh, phone yeah, call yeah. after phone call. Here's some new well, pictures. Yeah, he goes to um, the journalist. So he's trying to find information about Marsh, um, who had been wrongly uh, described as as the uh, child pornographer, whose name I can't remember. What was it? It was uh, like Wozniak <sighs> or something like that. It was, it was something like that. I think I just... Yeah. It's, it's ultimately like his name is just not important because he's just Exa a yeah. journalist <laughs> who's, who serves a means to an end to get the plot moving. That's it. He's a functional character and, and basically Cage goes in to try and get some dirt on this guy. Somehow just like ends up being able to freely walk around the, the uh, newspaper office and um, he goes up to his computer and his old desk space and he's trying to like root around for evidence. And then you've just got that hack journal who's working over hours who pops up and <laughs> asks him a grammatical question. And Cage yeah. can obviously draw on his English school like uh, teaching knowledge here and he gives her the correct answer. And then she snitches on him. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Used and abused for your knowledge of the language. Yeah. Um, I think obviously like just to, to quickly get to this point. So he's been told to kill the journalist. He It takes him about three attempts to do it. 
because he's you know the organization knows where he lives they can find him they leave him just messages in like magnet letters on his fridge like choose really. <laughs> it's too colorful to be intimidating in that sort of comic sans font um, and yeah. they slash his tires and then eventually he doesn't want to kill the journalist they tend to do it under this like bridge like underpass um he said he just wants to get information but the journalist sort of like freaks out they have a scuffle and he gets big back body dropped over into the freeway like hit by a truck um gets up and gets on a bus <laughs> quickly gets arrested in his in his uh, apartment which i found really interesting because when he gets arrested he opens the door comically the two detectives there uh, like mr gerard you're under arrest and he's just had a conversation with his wife at that point his wife doesn't kick up a fuss at all that he gets arrested she doesn't say yeah. a thing <laughs> um then they have the word exchange as we said earlier uh, the, the detective is some way knowledgeable of the organization he lets will go he says, like, you've got to get out of here, otherwise you're going to get killed. So he starts looking into the journalist. He goes to that um, that Irish pub, Wake, where they're saying, like... like <laughs> that funeral looked popping off. I'd love to get you. It was a barrel of laughs. The guy had just been murdered as far as they were aware, you know. He's <laughs> like, Alan, oh, you're a great journalist, but you are a bag of trash. <laughs> <laughs> he was a scumbag. He never paid. <laughs> Well, anytime you have like a, a public wake like that, the guy you, you're mourning never pays, never once paid, always like oh, a trash yes. oh, bag. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah, never. It was always cheap, but they loved him. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, I think he stole the journalist's like pass. That's how he got into um, uh, the newspaper. Oh, he did. Oh, yeah. He, 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 my mistake. Sorry. Yeah, he, he robbed it from the wake. Didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> One of his like these artifacts left to, to mourn him, something you know relevant, significant to him. Yoink! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then, as he said, he, he goes to his desk, and it's it just takes like a lot of time just to get to eventually a storage facility. But he's accosted by that sort of that you know hack journalist, and the exact <laughs> quote was like, "Hey, in a hyphenated compound situation, you capitalize yeah. the second word." Um, and then he's like, "Ah." Oh, only if the words have equal weight, like, um, what did he say? He's like, Homeland Security. Security. <laughs> <laughs> and then he said something else. And it felt like at this point, the writers were just like, oh, yeah, he's an English it's, it's, teacher. They're pedding it out, mate. Yeah, they're, they're, <laughs> like, they've got a word count. It's two hours before GCSE deadline. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and. Um, I think, like, an important, like, you know, side note. The screenplay here was by Robert Tannen and Todd Hickey um between the two of them i think this was probably the biggest thing they'd done they don't really have any any significant writing credits to their name i think for todd hickey this is his only writing credit um as i'm looking at imdb he is um largely and mostly a cinematographer uh with 19 cinematography credits uh listed underneath him so i think this this does you know with respect to reeks of a first effort and again i say that with all due respect i'm not saying i, I could write a better treatment of this or anything like that um but you i think it's take down fall take down and falls which has got an eight on imdb um Ooh. what were the what are they i can't see the rotten tomatoes for it uh, i i have to assume it's probably in the uh in the same realm as well it's actually a documentary, maybe that. Uh, maybe that <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but, but I think as well, um, you know, on, on that tangent, the director here, Roger Donaldson, 
um, who'd also directed um, a lot of stuff throughout the 90s, uh, worked with, loves working with Kevin Costner, had directed the likes of Species, Dante's Peak, The World's Fastest Indian, uh, starring Anthony Hopkins. Um, I found an interview actually that Cage did. It was like this like 90 second clip of an interview on YouTube that he did. And um, it seemed like, you know, Cage has been perfectly pleasant talking about the film, but it seemed like he was forcing himself to find compliments for Roger, Roger Donaldson. You can sort of tell that he didn't, that their processes didn't really gel. Um, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I'm, so I'm kind of like paraphrasing a bit here, but he was mentioning like how they would both tease each other. And then again, paraphrasing, he was like, um, after take 18, <laughs> uh, a new realization would occur. You wouldn't know it was there, <laughs> but you'd find it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's a bit passive aggressive, isn't it? It's, <laughs> so I think I think Cage typically is a guy who I think he knows what he wants to get out of a scene. I think he knows in his own head how a scene should play out. Mm. Um, but then for the rest of that sec that clip, he was also making note how there was um, and again really passive aggressive, making note that there was a good focus puller on the crew. And he was basically saying how the zooming in on the movie was really good. Um, it's like he could get a really good zoom on the pupil of the eye, and uh, you, could, you, could, you could capture all of a lot of emotion from that. So uh, just take okay. just take from that what you will. Um, what could it be? Do you think he's like racking his brains for something positive to say about the experience? <laughs> like, well, yeah, but I guess the zoom was good. It, it absolutely sort of, you know, again, I'm using the word reeked here, but just reeked of him trying to find something redeemable about mm -hmm. this process. Um, he, he did speak a little bit more positively of working with Guy Pearce. Um, he said uh, in an interview with MTV, Guy Pearce is very precise and clear about understanding the rhythm and the music of a scene. When I say premise, I mean he'll go through the script many times and really get down underneath it and get down into the nuts and the bolts and ask me questions about how does this line up for you? How does this track for you? That's unusual, to be perfectly perfectly direct. Not many film actors do that. Not many actors let you know or include you on where they want to go to see if that works with you. So that's nice. It's refreshing to have that. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, that's pretty raw wisdom, actually, straight from the mouth of Cage. Yeah, I mean, like I say, I think, you know, he he seemed to be complimentary, at least, of Guy Pearce from the limited, limited background information I could find. Uh, there was an, an interview yeah. with Harold Perinu, um that he did for another publication. I think it was Dread Central, I could be wrong. Um, but he was basically saying he wanted to work with Nick Cage. He was looking for interesting pod projects, sort of post-filming Lost. Um, and then he said of his character... I like how you don't know who, who, what he's all about. And then you find out in the sort of the third act of the film, mm -hmm. which I think maybe if you read it in the script, it probably comes across better. But in the film, that felt like such a sudden twist that Jimmy was also part of the organization. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he just goes straight around with a gun. <laughs> <laughs> like Cage accosts Jimmy, a friend of presumably many years. I don't think they ever allude to how long they've known each other. But they play chess together, you know. They, yeah. So they've got this life outside of work, and he's really reliable. Uh, he's a reliable figure in in uh, Cage's life. But yeah, as soon as he finds out there might be some sort of uh, school doggery going on, he's just straight round Jimmy's with a gun. <laughs> Jimmy in a hyphenated compound situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Homeland Security. <laughs> Firing at the roof. Ah! <laughs> um, but yeah, it's because he's seen it on the DVD that Alan has curated of all these like secret members, of which to Alan's knowledge, there's only five, but I think they make this whole point, especially with, um, and again, we'll get into that a little later, the very loose twist air quotes at the end of the film that there are much more members of this organization that you first realize. Um, like he, you know, points at Jimmy at gunpoint. And as you said, they play chess together, the good friends outside of work. And even at the start of the film in like New Orleans, they're going out dancing together with a, you know, on, on couples date nights. Um, can we just do that quote? So, uh, you, you, you may have made a note of this as well. They're on a couple's date night, Will, uh, AKA Cage, and, uh, and his wife, and then Jimmy and, and his wife. The two of them are there, it's like a masquerade ball. Yes. And there's some sort of reference to the soul screen. And Cage goes, it's not, oh, it's, <laughs> And that's enough to woo his wife into bed. And there's some tender love making going on. The noise of New Orleans fades out. Yeah. And he disrupts it halfway through to give his gift for the anniversary. And he's like, why mid-coital? <laughs> mid-coitus pulls out. Still <laughs> Do it in the drinks. Still like mid-coital, raw dogging, still yeah. definitely erect, like glazed in sweat. I've got a necklace for you. It's full of rubies. Yeah. <laughs> I think eyes tight. <laughs> so, oh my God, what are you doing? Why? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. One of the, uh, like a non-coital quote, but actually before that, this is before the scene, still at the start of the film. I don't know if you clock this one as well. Um, Will and Laura are in a bar, pre-dance. They're having like, I think it's their anniversary because they're like, oh, where do we see us in five years time? Um, and then they see the news on the TV about the guy who got rammed off the multi-story at the start. And the bartender's like, oh, no more leans. Oh, what are we like? Um, yeah. And then he's saying something about like how he won't leave New Orleans or something. Um, but then he's he says to the bartender about his admiration for the city. <laughs> he goes, and I'm like, the bartender is like, like just like a black guy doing his job. And he goes, we love New Orleans. Who dat? And I don't know <laughs> what that means. I don't know if that's a New Orleans phrase to shout who dat at people. Um, but it came out of nowhere. <laughs> I didn't clock it because I was actually lost in the fact that they were in this opulent environment. There's gold chandeliers and there was like really glitzy music playing. Everybody there was in a suit. It was their anniversary and they were at this bar with all of this low lighting. Uh, but for some reason, they were showing the news. <laughs> like it was some sort of provincial pub. It was clearly like, yeah. <laughs> and it was just on in this really obnoxiously big screen behind the bar. <laughs> <laughs> it was, I feel like it was, that's another, that is just scriptwriter taking a complete liberty there to, to, to convey an element of the story. Because you wouldn't go to a place, I mean, everything else screamed, oh, it's a, it's, a, it's a glitzy anniversary meal, you know. And I don't think anyone would tolerate just having the news on. <laughs> <laughs> real, real vibe killer, if nothing yeah, else. Yeah, it was, especially because it was like, we suspect murder. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> And isn't the uh, the barman's like, hey, that's where I park my car. <laughs> <laughs> it's like they're just... Stay out of it, mate. It's like they've really think, oh, we need to throw a, a line of humour in there. I think the same with like the the, the, the double hyphenated compound situation. And yeah. Bit, like, oh, we've got to get the little cage scream in there, the New Orleans spirit. 
I think the other bit, again, like very jarring, you know, when we got a bit of action midway through the film after he's escaped from the um, the police station and he's being chased by Simon and Scar and Cancer and he's being chased across the freeway, um, I thought, okay, we've got, we've got something here. We've got a bit of kinetic action. And then first of all, somehow he's very athletically slithers under the bridge to like hide and climbs down. And then eventually he's chased by the goons and hilariously, out of nowhere, um, Scar, I, I believe it is, sort of like goes over one of the bollards of the underpass, trips, and he's just absolutely ploughed and ragged by an SUV. He's dragged <laughs> under it for like an unnecessarily long amount of time. And then Simon just puts his head in his hands and goes, Ndoi! <laughs> There's so many! It was the most intense cross in the road sequence, man. Blatant disregard for the green cross code. That, yeah, that hedgehog, <laughs> that, that animated hedgehog, mate. <laughs> King of the road. Just because that man got... <laughs> it was mad, that. There were so many near misses. Like... Oh, just, just completely just unnecessarily energetic scene out of nowhere that you kind of not built up to anticipate. Yeah. You just kind of, like, get it. Yeah. But then after that, it's just like, as we've said, more padding, more padding, more padding. He gets the DVD. Um, and then, it, you know, we start uh, sort of etching towards the end of sort of the movie when um, I think he has that conversation with Simon. We find out his actual name is Eugene. Um, he says, look, you're like, look, I've got the DVD, which sort of like proves that you're part of this organization. You've got the CCTV of me, which proves I didn't kill the journalist, which I've now been arrested and I'm on all the front pages of the, the New Orleans Post for. Um, so he convinces him to go to to meet him at the Louisiana Superdome during a sold-out monster truck rally, um, <laughs> which I think, you know, is I don't think, I think it's such a, a rare spectacle over here that you get monster trucks. But, but over there, like, is it... Maybe I just my American culture just isn't up to speed, but is monster trucking really just that wildly popular in the USA? A sold I mean, out that arena was pretty them. packed out, wasn't it? But the thing it, is, what is it with Cage? I mean, I know that he was trying to essentially like uh, regain some power here, so he switched on micromanagement mode and he was getting Simon, aka Eugene, to do all of this arbitrary stuff. Like, and, and it, but, but the fact that amongst all of this chaos that had happened and all of the trauma he'd endured and like the plots he'd uncovered that cage would be like calling up like trying to book a ticket because it's like um, <laughs> for that for that monster trucks you've got a prepaid ticket under your name <laughs> it's like all of that it's just i don't that was slightly unbelievable really yeah definitely and i mean just looking quickly on google i mean that was definitely a capacity uh louisiana louisiana superdome the mercedes-benz superdome capacity according to google seventy-four thousand two hundred ninety-five monster truck pan uh, fans pans monster yeah. truck plans clang 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 uh, <laughs> packed out the superdome um and cage managed to get a ticket last minute Exactly. He must have been one of those guys on the door who's selling like proper sort of three times the price. The whole thing. <laughs> the classic tickets buy or sell. Buy or sell. Tickets buy or sell. Yeah, exactly. Galper. That's got everything going on. You know, or Cage like walks up to the front desk. Do you have any dropouts? And he, <laughs> it's like, <laughs> do you imagine that? The logistics of that. Like he's there. Like maybe he tried a couple of other places. He tried like a. Uh, I know the baseball game or like. Just, yeah. 
And then oh. the other's like, what else have we got? <laughs> like Celine Dion concert. <laughs> <laughs> You've got a prepaid ticket, Celine Dion, great seats, good view, great acoustics. Yeah. <laughs> Go to your seat, enjoy the first three songs. Yeah, yeah. Leave after my heart. And he's like, do I get to stay for my heart? will go on. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> That's the only one I know. <laughs> you get to leave during the opening crescendo. Then you must yeah. go. But, yeah. but then he's just being a dick. He's like, uh, take a leak. Go to the hot dog stand. Buy yourself a hot dog. I think with that, though, I found it hilarious that the idea that, like Pavlov's dog, Eugene can, like, piss on command. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Leak. Oh, fine. If that's what you're, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's just that was like sneeze, sneeze again, sneeze again. Yeah. <laughs> With your eyes open, again, again, yeah, yeah. again. <laughs> Tap your head and rub your belly, rub it. <laughs> Tell me your favorite memory of your father. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Feed um, your dog. I don't have a dog. <laughs> Get a dog. Feed it. Adopt. It's better. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, buy a pick and mix. Get a large snake. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's it. Eat your greens, son. <laughs> he just instructs him to have a really healthy life. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Go buy a patch of land. <laughs> Invest. <laughs> Invest in property. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, open a savings account. But eventually, um, yeah, they. I think they go next door because Laura has been abducted, which is weird because I thought she'd been abducted earlier in the film when a guy picks her up, but apparently she wasn't. It's like, oh, we, like your husband's been arrested. We just need to ask you some routine questions. She was like, oh, all right. Just gets into this car. Turns out she wasn't actually abducted, um, yeah. but then she is abducted by Jimmy afterwards. So they have this big face off in the like abandoned supermarket, super mall, uh, which is right next door. Um, and actually for the second time in the film, they make a reference, don't they, to the hurricane? Yes. And it's almost like this, I was thinking, is there some sort of like sociopolitical subtext to this? You know, that they're kind of going down that how New Orleans was, a, was abandoned after the hurricane and that there was a kind of uh, element of, of, of racism to it. And, or, but I was like, are they trying to touch it or are they just referencing it to keep people aware that it's meant to be in New Orleans? Or why would they, you know, or is it just something, a complete filler line? Because it seemed like it had some significance. You know what I mean? Or are they just explaining why they've got this kind of broken down building to have the final <laughs> showdown in? It's the only place yeah. they could get monster cool. truck tickets at the last <laughs> during filming. <laughs> yeah. I, don't, I think I think Cage is very fond of New Orleans though because he has had a lot of films that have had filming there. Um, just like uh, Zanderley before this, there was Man, uh, not Mandy, um, Sunny, a film that he directed, uh, which starred James Franco. Uh, I think the last film before this he was in was Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans, which was filmed. Okay. And you guessed it, New Orleans. Yeah. Um, I think the city gets some of like the money they get towards filming or something. So, I think in his own way. Maybe Cage suggested it. I don't know. I know he. I think he pushed for it in uh, Bad Lieutenant, but I think he just likes giving back to New Orleans. He's just very, very fond of the uh, of the city there. Um, I've wanted to go, to be fair, for a long time. Yeah, I just want to be you know part of that Mardi Gras, just like walking through the New Orleans streets, just yeah, yeah, like yeah. somehow get access to a trumpet. <laughs> it's like yeah and they've got that that interesting cuisine that like creole type cuisine that's like mixing the french with the sort of african influence and caribbean and they have like voodoo and hoodoo and it's all just kind of you know 
it's like that, that sort of jazz blues environment. I think everything just ends with like gump, something gump this, yeah, gump yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, you just yeah, go to any bar. <laughs> you just go to any any given bar, like give me the gump, and then you, you'll just yeah, get like an absolute steaming hot bowl. That's it with a side of gump. <laughs> gump pet. <laughs> I was just looking here for like New Orleans because I know he's been part of like the um, New Orleans Mardi Gras parade. I think he's been like the celebrated figure of it in the past. But just looking up here, um, he says he has a history with New Orleans. He purchased both the infamously haunted La Lurie Mansion and the historic Our Lady of Perpetual Help Chapel. Uh, both properties were foreclosed in 2009 after the tax debacle. Said subsequently, uh, Cage purchased an unnamed tomb, his own unnamed tomb, in the city's beloved St. Louis Cemetery. So he's just got like, and for the purpose of the... Um, for the purpose of like the Skype, uh, the Zoom video, I am showing Troy just like this triangular oh, uh, pyramid ooh. that he owns um, yeah. in New Orleans. Oh, is he, does he plan on using it, on I accommodating just, it himself, like when he's older or when he's dead? I, so. <laughs> I assume that is where he plans to be buried. So I think, you know, for me, as part of this, this journey to true Cage Nirvana, at some point, you know, Cage will... He might pass. We don't know for sure if he will. But if he does in my lifetime, I'll have to journey to New Orleans to pay my final respects. Um, oh, mate, that's going to be quite... That's a powerful moment, isn't it? Watch um, Because you... you Let's say that... I mean, how old is Cage now? Uh, 57 as of recording. Okay, so it, it, maybe then. I mean, Cage could be going until he's in his 90s. Uh, so it's still a, a long way off. And, you, you, you know, we, uh, uh, when in, in that, by the time that comes around, we'll be in our silver years. I know. I mean, I turned you know, 30 <laughs> this year. It could well be not until my late <laughs> 50s, 60s that I take this pilgrimage. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I want to come with. I'm definitely coming with me. Oh, man. We just have yeah. to we just have to source just like a group trip. To yeah. <laughs> everyone who's ever appeared on the podcast (laughs) i feel kind of bad though because like uh, for my for my partner uh, new orleans is like an absolute dream destination for her she's always wanted to go and then one day we're like you know like some anniversary like dinner or something like look like uh, like i've got this i've got tickets to new orleans we're finally going but it's under the false false pretense that i'm actually going to visit cage's grave (laughs) Yeah, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> you just you just hear like a sad little like trumpet in like leather leather trowel, and it's just me like no top leather trowel. <laughs> da, 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 da. <laughs> just, just yeah, you've got camping tickets in the graveyard. <laughs> it's a one night. It's a one week stopover. <laughs> <laughs> it's. I think you'd need a personal moment with him. You think you need a quiet. You'd have to tell uh, everybody there that you know you just need some time alone with Gage. Yeah, I think I think I'd like you know I'd have to say to like the group to my partners like look I know this, I know you know we're all here to enjoy you know I just I just need this yeah. I just need this like I, I I'm a man who like I've not asked I've not asked for much in my life I'm not want for much in my mm-hmm. life I've I've been a, very much a guy as you may well try I've I've very much winged it I've made a career I say career <laughs> I've I've lived a bottom barrel scraping life just <laughs> making last minute decisions. Um, but you know what? You're winging it in style. And if you <laughs> wang it, if you what what would be the correct term? Winged, wanged. If you wang it all away <laughs> to New Orleans, and imagine it would only be six foot of soil separating you 
and care. Then again, I guess he'll be buried in the tomb, won't he? So it'd only be like maybe 12 inch of concrete, mate, separating you and the body of Cage. Ah, uh, um, I know it's like, it's like I don't want to desecrate it. I don't want to, you know, be disrespectful. Yeah, don't be, but it'd be so tempting to pull a bit of a burke and hair or whatever. <laughs> crank, <laughs> crank, just like in the way that he owns a dinosaur bone, I'll be like the the, the holder of like the cage's skeleton. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like to think I'm just going to be just going to be haunted by his ghost forevermore. Oh, yeah, like you pull it, he'll pull a toot and car moon on you. <laughs> <laughs> just like the, the plane will the plane will go down on the way over the Atlantic back home. <laughs> possessed by his spirit i suddenly get into like the acting game like who is this like possessed by like the hoodoo of cage like, oh, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. like this is like the new nicholas cage like change the name to like like daryl cage like daryl box yeah, or something it. i don't know just like jigging and jiving electric energy in my veins like 65 year old unknown daryl cage <laughs> as in <laughs> how did the spirit of nicholas cage <laughs> He's just constantly gyrating, jigging, going full throttle. I mean, what in, in some ways, what what a one eighty turnaround to my life to be possessed by the cage himself. Um, but so I think, arguably, you're already on that track, mate. I don't think you, uh, <laughs> more of a sort of psychosomatic thing <laughs> rather than the actual. You know, <laughs> it's happening. It's coming. How I mean, the listeners can't see, but he's already starting to bear a slight resemblance, more so than my first appearance. <laughs> Hulk that could be just tearing my shirt. Plastic surgery to look, to look <laughs> more like Kate. Harrowing, awful, just reconstructive surgery. Grotesque yeah. Frankenstein. <laughs> look at me. <laughs> oh. Pulled back nose, just like shaped in his in his style. I'd have to get like a hair transplant as well in accordance with and take all of his fashion uh, ideas as well. I saw another article from last year, February 2020, where he's pictured in like leather trousers, leather jacket with his, I think now wife, who was at the time was just named as Mysterious Woman, um, leaving <laughs> leaving his unnamed grave in New Orleans. So he definitely visits it as well. Um, is, that, is that like kind of haunting though, visiting your own grave when you're still with us? Wow, that's no, that, that to be honest with you, I think it would be uh, if I had that, I would, I would be, I would want to cultivate a relationship with it because it's like staring into eternity, isn't it? You're kind of, uh, yeah, that's that's interesting. He's a very interesting man, of course. I think he's, I think he's definitely, he's very much in touch with the occult, though. So I think he's, he's got probably a load of perspectives on life and death. I think he's, I think he's a man who's perpetually unafraid of the unknown, of what comes after. Um, I think you know he's setting himself up tidily. He's got a nest egg for death, basically. Yes. He's um, you know maybe. Well, uh, can I do a shout out actually? Do um, so. I live uh, in Beckenham, um, in South London, formerly a Kentish town until the tentacles of the London Transport Network claimed it for their own. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, yeah. um, but basically, there's a very very large graveyard here. And I always do it. I always walk around it. it it's kind of uh, was part of my daily routine for a while until it, it got a little bit morbid. <laughs> As, um, living, it was just getting a bit peculiar. I was trying to like find other entrances so the staff didn't recognise me like going in. <laughs> um, but there's a there was a massive kind of tomb like grave similar to the one that Cage has purchased for his future self, and it's surrounded by like a little cage. And there was um, uh, not a cage, a little like 
cage on the brain. There was like a <laughs> fence going around and there's a little water yeah. feature and so on. And um, I was thinking, who is it that's buried in that? And I looked and it said Winnie Dangerfield on it. So I did a Google and I encourage anyone who's remotely interested to do the same. And Winnie Dangerfield was like an old child star from the 1920s, like almost <laughs> at the beginning of the kind of cinematic era in this country, at least. Jeez. And she was in various sort of films, like I think from even earlier, it was the 19 teens. Uh, she was in a film called Sweep Sweep or something like that. And, uh, <laughs> I, you can't, <laughs> a chimney sweep. And, um, and uh, her dad was an actor as well from that period. And obviously they accumulated some wealth because as I say, it's a pretty extravagant grave. But um, I just want to, throw this one out to the danger fields that um yeah I'm, i regularly visit your ancestors uh tomb <laughs> <laughs> if any if any of the british armor the danger fields are yeah. listening it's still active uh yeah. get, get in touch we'd love to hear from you yeah 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 <laughs> but it, it was interesting sweep, sweep. You know? yeah I'd, I'd like sweep. to watch sweep sweep i can't find it anywhere if you've got any uh you know classic reels and want to set up a private screening for your lads yeah we could imagine that i could start my own uh, podcast but it's dedicated to winnie dangerfield the unearthed works of winnie dangerfield and co oh mate she was uh yeah so she was born in 1908 she made uh, other films include the proof of the pudding <laughs> <laughs> the fighting strain of old england jesus mate and then there's rough on uncle <laughs> <laughs> Oh, no, it's called Sweep, Sweep, Sweep. It's a 1913 comedy. Three children play tricks on a chimney sweep. (laughs) (laughs) And hilarity ensues. And and you bet these kids are like the the sons and daughters of like some wealthy business industrial mogul. The sweep's just trying to earn a penny farthing a shilling. Yeah. And he's just harassed and harangued. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, for the amusement of the upper classes, definitely. <laughs> I mean, what an ending that would be. Just a poor chimney sweep, like Jim Chimney, just hung in the streets of London as Winnie Dangerfield tap dances. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's it. Look That's over here. Sweet. Look over here. Don't look over there. <laughs> Not, don't look at the workhouse. <laughs> sweep, 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 sweep. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> speaking of endings, um, so we get to the, the climax here, um, where it's uh, Will and Eugene and Laura and Jimmy and some of the other goons. Uh, Jimmy here, who's got, has abducted Laura, as we said, got Laura at gunpoint, has a sudden change of heart. She's like, you promised they wouldn't be hurt. Um, but, and this is when Eugene just kind of suddenly changes his tune. He's been fairly composed throughout the whole film, keeping his cards to his chest. And then when he, finds out you know that they're all going to get killed anyway wool's just like you're sick and then eugene's got like that twitching eye moment he's like what what did you say to me (laughs) his exact quote was on the contrary i am very well Um, (laughs) i'm a very stable genius (laughs) trump delusions it was a full-on trumpism (laughs) he's like i've never been better on the contrary i'm very well this country is sick. I'm here to reclaim this country, make it better. Um, yeah, well, that's the thing, man. It's like everybody kept saying um, that was involved in this organization. Like, we just didn't want the city to go to rot. 
you know, we're, we're just doing the bit. Look, it's like neighborhood watch extreme edition. <laughs> like <laughs> it's no longer just, it's not the county council and the potholes anymore. Like this is uh, <laughs> next level. <laughs> this is this is beyond an email to your MP at this point. Yeah, um, this is this is again a, the the epitome of a right wing grassroots movement taking it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, this is like you know those videos where they're just like outing criminals on Facebook pages, and you got these um, absolutely you know, patriots in the comments with British flags and yeah, St George's crosses in their names. Go yeah, get him, get him, scam, scam, scam. Anyone know where this bastard lives? Um, money <laughs> reward. Um, <laughs> Keyed car, money reward. Um, <laughs> you and if you're listening, you know exactly who I'm on about because you've got them on your Facebook, haven't you? So we get down to like Will and Eugene. Uh, obviously, like Eugene has snapped, just a completely different demeanor. And I find at this point as well, considering Eugene's line of work, the fact that Will just overpowers him and just smashes his head just on the floor repeatedly. Um, he's completely outclassed by an English teacher with no background in yeah. combat whatsoever. But he's got a lot of fight in there. Got a lot of fight in him, you know. And uh, Jimmy, get, Jimmy, of course, gets shot, doesn't he, in that period? Yeah, Jimmy is unceremoniously dispatched a few bullet holes for his, uh, uh, for his, well, having a change of heart. That's what you get when you join the organization. Yep. Dispatched by Guy Pierce. Um, they don't think twice. I think, I think with Will in this scene as well, he gets sort of thrown off balconies and like down escalators about two or three times. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> How many stories up were they, Richard? <laughs> it just takes it every time. Take it. I think you can always tell in this film in particular when it was a stuntman as opposed to Nicolas Cage, just because in the slow motion shots, when the fringe flaps up, it's just considerably thicker hair. Um, <laughs> The absolute tell um, of, of Cage versus stunt performer. Um, but then I think this is what we were touching on earlier. You know, they obviously keep forgetting to sort of make Laura anything more than a one-note character. And then out of nowhere, after she's also been chased and thrown through a few glass panes herself, um, she just fires a few bullets. Oh, she had horrible guttural sound from her intestines then. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I heard that. That's <laughs> an... So, oh, I'll absolutely cut that out. Where's Vile. the call of Cthulhu? <laughs> Vile, atrocious animal. Um, Laura from the top of the escalator, gun aimed, shoots him in the chest, absolutely dispatches him. Um, and then I think it's, I think the guy, Detective Durgan, the word association cop from earlier, rolls up and he's like, um, the way I see it, Jimmy and Eugene shot each other. He's like, and that's the story, right? It's New Orleans. Yeah. And then he has the nerve to be like, before he walks away, do you want to join my organization? <laughs> it's like, after all this, no, I don't want any point in your damn organization, mate. <laughs> I think I've made it very, very clear at every possible opportunity that I want nothing to do. I don't want to you, be yeah, in your organization. Any of your people, I'm not interested. I'm not into this whatsoever. Um, and that's what marked it, isn't it? As a, it, it moved on from that Neeson-esque revenge flick, like after the yeah. first half hour, and it really turns into a conspiracy film. And I think I feel like because Knowing was obviously had elements of that as well. And is that common trope in Cage's work? Um, I think definitely. I think just maybe atypical for this point of time. I think post two thousand and eight, there were just a lot of films trying to 
get a slice of that take and pie. Um, I think, you know, Cages had sort of one or two of these, especially around the time as well. But I think Taken just got so wildly popular. Um, yeah. and no, no one expected it. That just couldn't capture that lightning once again. So mm-hmm. um, I think maybe if they'd gone all in on Cage having like an action background for his character or being more capable and not just um, plodding the English man, teacher yeah. who will give you like a hyphenated conjunction at a moment's notice, but... Yeah. Um, <laughs> just scream at others then yeah I think I think they went really hard in on the everyman stuff here which um, you know it, it, it kind of works I think maybe some more action scenes wouldn't have hurt it mm-hmm. um, but we're just left with all that lingering questions of what about the organisation I think maybe if there was more mystery of it rather than just um, almost it's almost like the NWO the, the old WCW faction the NWO in the, in the heyday of WCW, but every week there was just two more people joining the NWO, and the NWO has got four different factions within its own faction. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's that's what that's what this organization is. Um, and I, you, the, it's something that attracts us as viewers because I think there's something inherently compelling about the idea of a shadowy cabal of evil doers that control the world you know and like that's never going to go away i think it's constantly being reinvented isn't it that idea you see it in films all the time and people talk about it and there's something exciting about conspiracy theories on that level and maybe it's like our like in a desire to think to know to, to like would be comforted by the fact that actually there is someone in control of everything like rather than having to face the sort of random chaos of reality, <laughs> <laughs> the random chaos of reality, which is you know, it feels like I think it would be you know nice to know that there was an organization, a real Illuminati, yeah, yeah figure, yeah. just gate, yeah, exactly, just sort of t- caretaking, you know, <laughs> the danger the fields. <laughs> it's the danger fields that have been in charge this whole time. <laughs> <laughs> sweep sweep <laughs> pulling the strings the whole time sweeping um, the bodies into the mass grave <laughs> sweep, sweep sweep tap tap tapping right on them um, then, like I say obviously we're left with more questions than answers about the organisation it's clear that Detective Durgan seems to be some part of it, he's either head of it he's definitely aware of it but then at the end you know, um, I think Will kind of making amends almost he goes to give the DVD of Alan's research to another journalist that he met in the wake, who I think is called Gibbs. Um, but then Gibbs takes it. It's like, I'm going to grab a drum, say. And then he just, Cage turns to the camera and it's just like that close by his face. Like, like a saw-esque. The tendrils of the organisation, the roots run deeper. Um, so I, mean, I think the ending at that point, I think, because I wanted to be more interested in the organization, but it just gave us like entry level organization. Didn't really dive any deeper into it other than that kind of synopsis we got from uh, Simon Eugene at the start. So how did you sort of feel about the ending? Did it leave you wanting um, more justice, seeking justice too? Or were we just like, Ugh. if we could find out more about the organization and because it obviously it was New Orleans based, really, wasn't it? Like, so if is this a national organization? Is it international even? Because obviously they've got a lot of power in in Louisiana. It is seems. It, yeah. So you know, I'd, I'd be interested in finding out about that. 
Um, because, well, yeah, there's just a lot of potential there from a writing point of view. But I don't know if just if someone was to say, does this film need a sequel? No, it doesn't, as far as I'm concerned. It does stand up, I think. I enjoyed it, as I said to you at the very beginning. There are certainly moments of uh, inconsistency, but then you've got to expect that from this type of film as well. Like, I, I think that not everybody, the average viewer that comes to watch it is, is there for a different reason, you know. They don't necessarily need to be bowled over by the intricacies of a conspiracy. They just want to see Cage, like, diving down escalators and people getting hit by cars and people getting <laughs> shot. And, you know, it does deliver, perhaps even not as much as it could, but it does deliver. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's sort of a great summary, really. Mm. Like, it's a really interesting premise. Does it follow through with it? Not really. Um, I think it kind of plays it far too safe for the rest of the film and then doesn't really know what it's trying to do. I think it just it struggles to fill its runtime of just over um, an hour and a half, about an hour forty. Mm-hmm. But um, I think maybe maybe in a more experienced screenplay um, writer's hands, there could have been something more to grab onto here. But um, I think I was expecting a lot worse at twenty eight percent. I don't think it's as I don't think it quite warrants a twenty eight percent on Rotten Tomatoes. I don't no. even think Nicolas Cage necessarily warrants a uh, worst actor nomination. Um, no. or by any any stretch um, that was actually the year as well that uh, I forgot to mention earlier Twilight's Breaking Dawn Part 2 swept the Razzies that year just oh. to, sort of, to, to round off that bit of cinematic history for you um, <laughs> but you know it's, it's, it's a forgettable film it's fine, I think Cage is fine January Jones isn't given a lot to do Guy Pearce I think with the script is also I think everyone is one note here mm. um, but it's it's the kind of film you'd probably see on ITV four at half eleven on a Thursday night. And you're like, yeah, yeah I'll stick yeah, it on until it. I fall asleep. It's a fall asleep film. Um, it is a fall asleep, yeah, definitely. <laughs> in the most most respectful uh, way possible. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I think wrapping up here, coming to the end of this episode, um, you know, Troy, very articulately again, summarise your feelings. You know, we've 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 dealt with the conspiracies of knowing we've had a tipple of the conspiracies of seeking justice who knows where the third one may take us and oh boy will there be a third one Um, (laughs) there will is the answer to that rhetorical question mate (laughs) please will there be please (laughs) i'm here (laughs) love your people speak to my people um but as ever as we look to wrap up now on this uh, Seeking Justice, uh, as ever, for the listeners, where can we find you on the socials? Uh, you'll find me uh, at uh, t- t- Mr. Troy Hewitt on uh, Instagram and Mr. Underscore Troy Hewitt on Twitter. That's where you get me. <laughs> Look at that. Link's all in the description. Uh, if you've enjoyed the episode, obviously, let us know. Get in touch. Um, but obviously, this comes to the end of the episode. Justice has been sought. And if you've enjoyed it, hopefully, we'll catch you in the next one. But until then, keep on, keep on caging. It's all you have to do. Thank you, take care, and a good bye. <laughs>